It's a Mailbag Monday. We've got your questions, including which prospects are most likely to get traded this offseason. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're probably part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to get started today. So as we do every single Monday, this mailbag entirely consists of questions from listeners of this show. If you have a question for us, tons of ways to get them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked On Farm. We have a Discord. We have a subtext. You can leave us a comment on YouTube. We've got quite a few everydayers over there on YouTube that have dropped that they're everydayers and have given really good questions or really good show ideas. So we're going to be doing some shows this week that came from our friends over at YouTube. So let us know, let me know if you're an everydayer and what you want to know about what you want to see for the show. The first one here is the top prospects, like I guess the prospects that are most likely to get traded this offseason. And this one's, I'm not going to say it's tough because obviously trades are going to happen. There's a lot of guys out there, a lot of major leaguers that are uh, potentially going to get moved. But I am going to say it's not easy because you never really know how teams value prospects on other organi- like in other organizations and who they're going to ask for. But what we, what we can do is we can go through and identify some teams that we expect to be active in the trade market and who are their surplus assets that are most likely to get moved based on the major league roster and the team's tendencies in the past. And I think the number one guy, if you're watching on YouTube, you saw him in the thumbnail. I think the most likely prospect to get traded, if I had to give you a name, was Michael Bush of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So 2019 first rounder out of UNC, infielder, really suited to be a first baseman. So one reason, where I, I told you we're looking at the Major League roster, you've got Freddie Freeman signed long-term. So one of the reasons you might consider moving Michael Bush is his like long-term he's blocked at his primary position. They've tried him at second. They've tried him at third. They tried him a little bit in left field too. And honestly, he didn't look that great at any of those. Second base was probably the best looking position. And even that was fine. Uh, The fact that they re-signed Max Muncy to a multi-year deal tells me that despite how good Michael Bush performed in the minors last year, they don't think he's ready. And the Major League call-up wasn't good, but he did really well in the minors. So, contact on the season for Michael Bush. 98 games in AAA. He starts there, he bumps up to the majors in late April, gets sent back down, and spends most of the rest of the year down. He comes up again briefly in like mid-June, 
And then he comes up again in like late August. So a lot of bouncing around. But in the minors, all told, 323, 431, 618 slash line in his 98 games in the minors in Oklahoma City. 27 home runs, 57 extra base hits, 65 walks to 88 strikeouts, and 4 for 4 on stolen bases. He played a lot of second. He played a lot of third. Again, primarily a first baseman. That's mostly what he played in North Carolina. He did play some outfield a little bit, especially in his, I think it was in his draft year. He played some left field. And again, they've tried him a little bit in left field in the minors and even for an inning in the majors in his call-up time. But just never really seemed to get an opportunity in the majors long enough for him to get into a groove. And when he was in the minors, I mean, did a lot of stuff Led the Pacific Coast League, had a one, like an OPS over 1,000. Uh, from June 30th until he was called up that last time in August, his, he had 17 home runs, was the most in the major leagues in that, or in the minor leagues in that span, and would have been most in the majors if not for Matt Olson. So like when he first got sent down, or I guess the second time he got sent down in late June, before that long stretch where he, again, struggled at the major league level, he picked up a hit in 21 of his first 25 games and had a 39 game on base streak ended up with 42 of 43 games. He got on base before he got called back up and he's done everything he needed to do at the minor league level, but at the major league level, he struggled. And again, it was multiple sporadic call-ups during the season. So I understand the situation he's in and trying to make it happen there. But in those 27 games, for Michael Bush, 167, 247, 292. Two home runs, five extra base hits, eight walks to 27 strikeouts. So the strikeout rate went up, walk rate significantly went down, and just didn't produce at all like he had showed you in the minors. It would be hard to argue that there's anything he could do in 2024 to improve his draft stock. And so I can see... The fact it looks like they don't necessarily want him to be the first option in the major leagues in 2024, unless the plan is to have him at DH and a little bit of second base. They used Mookie Betts at second base, rotated a lot of other guys in. And again, they re-signed Max Muncy to a multi-year deal. So you've got Max Muncy still there. Miguel Vargas is still around, who they had tried at second base before they went with, with Mookie Betts there. And Bush isn't necessarily great at second or at third. They tried him at third. They tried him at second. At third base, his arm is really too not strong enough to make it work. And he is a very interesting trade chip. And you can take him and you can take any number of these pitchers you still have. Nick Frost is one that kind of stands out to me. But any one of these pitchers you still have and package those guys in a deal whether it's for a Corbin Burns, whether it's for Dylan Cease, making some sort of move to a team that needs a first baseman. Uh, that's where I think the kind of the Brewers trade makes a lot of sense. I've seen some proposals that are them trying to get Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas in case they're not confident in what Gavin Lux can do or moving Gavin Lux in the deal. There's a lot of options there, but Michael Bush seems like the most likely prospect from the outside to get traded simply because. He's blocked at virtually every position. 
didn't perform in his major league call-up, although, like I said, he didn't have a, a really good chance to perform. And they're like he's going to be in demand by other teams. Some other guys, Baltimore seems to me to be a almost a lock to trade somebody, but I honestly don't know if it's going to be one of their young infielders. I think if you see a trade of a prospect out of Baltimore, and again, the veterans are probably more likely to get traded than the prospects simply because of money. Anthony Santander is due like a estimated $14 million in free uh, in arbitration in his ARB four-year. Feels like a lock he's going to get moved. The largest contract being paid by being paid right now to a non-arbitration player by the Orioles is they're paying $4 million of the $12 million owed to James McCann. They have a grand total. They had four guys settle on contracts and not go to arbitration. So they have six guys that are not either arbitration or pre-arbitration contracts. That's it. Their highest paid salary in 2024, as of now, before arbitration awards are decided, will be $5.6 million for Chris Davis. And so I could actually see a veteran getting traded from Baltimore and Anthony Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, Ryan O'Hearn, one of those guys. But if you're looking at, an, at a prospect, looking at an infielder, Joey Ortiz feels like a guy that would have more value to other organizations than he has for Baltimore because they have so many infield options. I could also see them trading one of those prospect outfielders, right? A Colton Kowser, maybe trading a, a Heston Kierstad, making one of those deals. The Toronto Blue Jays feel like if they trade a piece, it's going to be an infielder. They have a ton of depth in their infield, whether it's Aurelvis Martinez, Kay Doty, Tucker Toman, Addison Barger, who played some outfield recently, has shown that he can hit for both power and average, has a good arm. I can see a lot of teams saying, we're going to go get Addison Barger, plug him into, into right field, and let him learn because he's got six years of club control. Uh, for the Reds, everybody talks about Jonathan India getting moved to help get pitching. If they trade a prospect, to me, it would make sense. It'd be a guy like a Sal Stewart, right? Uh, 2022 first rounder. Played 117 games between single A and high A last year and was really good. 275, 396, 416, 12 home runs, 36 extra base hits, 84 walks to 77 strikeouts, and 15 to 19 on stolen bases. But with all of the infielders they have, obviously the reason they're discussing trading Jonathan India is one, money. He's, he's going to be in arbitration. But two, uh, how many other infielders they have, including Nuelvi Marte, who despite getting injured in winter ball over the weekend, I were hoping should be available for the regular season. And then you've got other prospects at third, like Cam Collier. I could see that being a guy that gets moved as well. In just a minute, uh, I'm those of you who can't see because you're on audio, I'm wearing a hat from the Rome Emperors. Minor League Baseball saw some name changes and some rebranding efforts over the week, like, recently, and I want to talk about that. We'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. You can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. 
you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, no better time to get in on the action. The app is incredibly easy to use, wide range of betting options, spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. And if you join now and start doing this stuff for the NFL, you can be on familiar with how all this stuff works before they start doing college bowl season. That's always tons of fun. That'll start with those announcements come next weekend. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started with your betting during the NFL season with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. Like I said, doing a wearing a hat right now for the Rome Emperors. This is an affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. High A Rome. They made this announcement the same day that the MVP was being announced. And it was something where they did it at an event at the ballpark as part of a watch party they were doing for the MVP decision. And we've seen a lot of minor league teams do name changes and the time right after the season is always when you do that. You hear that stuff come out in November. But a lot of minor league teams do name changes, do alternate identities and things like that. And a lot of people, especially the purists who grew up with their local teams being owned by the minor league affiliate and having the same name, a lot of folks don't necessarily love it and want to know why. And when you see a minor league organization change names, there's typically three different reasons why it happens, okay? So the first one is to provide some separation from the major league club. This isn't usually something, this isn't a stated reason that they always talk about. It's simply because of proximity. You did actually see Atlanta talk about this when they announced they were changing their AAA team Gwinnett from the Gwinnett Braves to the Gwinnett Stripers, which is a fish, a local fish. And the reason for that was they claimed that since they're in the same metro area that you had, that they had situations where fans or I guess casual attendees, somebody who was wanting to come to a game while they were in the area would buy tickets to the wrong sporting event, not realizing this was a minor league team. So a little bit of separation from the major league club is something teams do. Uh, The bigger reason and the stated reason for Rome doing this was to allow the team, the, the minor league team, to create a little bit of a better connection to their local community. Rome, Georgia, uh, this is something they've been there since 2003 and they've always been the Braves. They've been the Rome Braves the entire time they were there. They were actually purchased away from the Braves. Somebody bought them from the Braves in, in prior to 2022. Diamond Baseball Holdings. We've talked about this a while back. I should probably go back into it again sometime soon, but they wanted to do something that both acknowledged the city that they are in something that uh you know but something that was also family friendly and so they went with the rome emperors because obviously rome and the city of rome has a lot of ties back to rome italy Uh, that's a local thing they took a lot of suggestions i think they had 5300 name suggestions that people submitted fans submitted And then they went with, for the mascot, they went with a penguin and a toga with a bat. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One was they didn't want to have a Little Caesars guy walking around with a metal helmet. This is a quote from the general manager. 
They didn't want a little Caesars looking dude walking around with a gold medal helmet. And real life mascots are always tough because if you have to replace the person, it obviously makes it tough because the mascot looks different. But then two, they wanted something that would be lighthearted and family friendly. We'll acknowledge there's no penguins in Atlanta, or no penguins in Georgia outside of the Atlanta, the Georgia Aquarium. I can acknowledge there's no penguins in uh, in Georgia outside of the Georgia Aquarium. But again, the general manager made a note: there's also no Bengals in Cincinnati, and there's no grizzly bears in Memphis. So it's not a prerequisite. But this is something where they wanted the won the dual names and the interplay. They wanted something that was kid-friendly. And besides, how often do you see a penguin as a mascot? So, like I said, I've got this hat, got some koozies, a t-shirt that was all sent to me. Uh, thank you very much to Rome, the marketing person who, who was in charge of that and got that to me. If you are watching this and you work for a minor league organization, we love to wear minor league baseball hats on this show. You are more than welcome to send stuff to our studios. DMs are open. Uh, But the third reason, and going back to the hat and the shirt and everything, the third reason why you see these teams do these rebrands or do alternate identities and things like that is merchandise sales. So the way that this business is set up, the way that the costs are shared between major league teams and minor league teams, um, the major league team, in essence, pays for your players their salaries, and some sort of cost sharing for all of the new things that are required to happen. You'll remember we talked about with the new CBA, you now have food requirements, you now have lodging requirements, all of these enhanced quality of life things for minor league prospects. And there's not a hard and fast, this is exactly what has to be covered by each organization. The parent organization versus the minor league team. And the minor league team is very much, they're not making a ton of money off of uh, broadcast rights, right? The minor league team is very much dependent on the gate. So the tickets sold, they're very much dependent on merchandise sales, and they're very much dependent on concessions, other things that go in with the gate, as well as other events held at the ballpark and finding ways to make money off of those. And so, Doing a rebrand, putting out all new merchandise, not only gets you a surge of sales initially, after the event was announced, my my extended family was on the site looking at hats and all of that stuff. Not only do you get that initial surge of sales of merchandise, but going forward, when you don't match the name of the parent organization, there's a higher base level of sales that happen because If you're a Braves fan and you're going to visit the Rome Braves or the Mississippi Braves or whoever it might be, you'll just wear your Braves hat, right? You don't have to have a separate separate piece of merchandise to represent that team. And there's an incentive for the team if they have a separate identity. Yes, it helps connect to the local community. Yes, it helps differentiate you from the parent organization, but also... It raises the floor on merchandise sales from fans who are attending games or want to attend games and want to fit in as they attend games. You've also seen, especially recently, a lot more marketing efforts around alternate identities. Some of them have been very popular. 
And with that, there's opportunities for alternate logos, alternate identities, things like that. That is partly, again, connecting to different groups. If you look at the Copa de la Diversion uh, marketing campaign, that is connecting to different underrepresented local groups. But then you also have opportunities to sell merchandise for that. The Marvel Defenders of the Diamond campaign, things like that are also marketing related. So helping these teams with the gate, helping these teams with merchandise sales so that they can, one, better afford the additional costs that are not covered by the parent organization, but then two, so that they can be more profitable in general so that you can help them stay around. That's always a nice thing. Uh, In just a minute, we put out a mock draft last week, our first of the year. We got some pretty strong reactions and some interesting comments. I want to talk about those as well as a wild proposed five-team trade. We'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back to Locked on MLB Prospects, final segment of the Monday Mailbag Reminder. If you have questions for this episode, I would love to hear them. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, so it's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. We have a ton of other ways to get to us, whether it's a Discord, subtext, whatever it might be. It's all in the episode description. It's all in the show notes. So put out the mock draft on Thursday and Friday and only got 10, 11 picks in on the first show. So I had to go all the way through the first round on the second show. And there's a little bit of feedback that I got from some people who I trust on these kind of things guys that we were maybe a little bit too low on, things like that, as well as some common trends I noticed in all of the comments that we received, the tweets, all of that kind of stuff. One, I'm a little bit too low on Jay Weatherholt from West Virginia. Somebody that was on the right track when I was talking about how his batted ball data, his Deeper metrics are all really attractive. Over 90% contact rate. In zone, it was like 91.7%. Overall contract was like 93.4. Having a really low chase rate, a really good average exit velocity, all that kind of stuff was on track with that. And so I had him going to Cleveland at eight because they super heavy into the model and they really, uh, one, they need power, but they really prioritize that contact ability. Some of the feedback I got, again, from people who honestly know more than me on the draft, they focus on only the draft, and people that I trust, said that he's probably closer to number one overall than number 10, especially, like, he is probably, as of right now, a legitimate candidate to go number one overall, depending on what Jack Caglione does this year at Florida. So. A little bit of adjustment there. If I had to redo that, he's probably going up there, you know, top three, top four versus coming in at number eight. Another observation I had was that, golly, everybody wants Tommy White on their team. It feels like the most known player in this draft class to outside observers, to casual fans, to people who somewhat follow this but haven't really dived into the class yet is. Tommy White of LSU, formerly of NC State. Uh, Tommy Tanks, as he's known. Uh, A lot of fans were really excited about the idea of their team taking him. I had him going at 14 to the Cubs. uh, And it was something where a lot of people who were picking before that said they hoped their team would get him. A lot of folks uh, picking after that said they were really hoping that he would still be on the board when their team got there. 
Uh, obviously, MLB teams don't draft based on our preferences, fan preferences, that kind of stuff, but just found it really interesting. That was by far the most common player commented on between the two shows. Also got a little bit of comments that Vance Honeycutt, who I had falling to 17, that unless he had, if he had a similar season to what he had in 2022, the lower batting average, still under 300, the strikeouts, that assuming the strikeout rate continued to drop a little bit, he probably wouldn't fall that far, but that he, it probably is the biggest unknown right now as far as guy who could go in the top five or guy who could fall down to the mid-teens. So it was a little bit of a bold choice to say he was going to fall to 17 in my mock, but not completely out of the question, depending on how his 2024 goes. And that's why doing mocks this early aren't incredibly helpful, but they're always really interesting. And, and it's really just a, be- a good exercise to get more familiar with the draft class as a whole for both you and for me. I, there was an article came out on MLB.com late last week, about six, six as they called them, quote, bonkers blockbuster trades that they were proposing. And it's from Anthony Castro Vince. I think we've talked about his stuff on the show before. But one of them really stood out to me as I could absolutely see them doing this. It just feels like it's a lot of stuff. And it's, I think it's a good conversation topic. So the trade is a four-team trade. I think I have it in the notes there on the the little sidebar as five, and that's on me. Uh, For the Yankees, they are getting third baseman Alex Bregman, outfielder Jake Myers, and left-hand pitcher Jared Schuster. The Astros would be getting infielder Jordan Westberg. The Orioles would be getting right-hand pitcher Dylan Cease, and the White Sox would be getting outfielder Jason Dominguez. Uh, catcher and first baseman Samuel Basalo from the Orioles and right-hand pitcher Spencer Arigetti from the Astros. This is a really interesting suggestion. Obviously, a little bit like he said, it is legitimately bonkers and a blockbuster trade, but probably could use a little bit. We haven't talked about the possibility of Alex Bregman getting traded, right? Uh, It's probably pretty, the odds are pretty low, but I think this kind of comes down to they have to make a decision, right? Bregman's a year away from free agency. Jose Altuve's a year away from free agency. Their farm system is not very good. They've traded away some of the top prospects. They've graduated a lot of guys. Jeremy Pena was a big part of that World Series run. A bunch of those pitchers came out of international free agency and ran through the system. And so they don't necessarily have the depth in the system to extend the competitive window at the major league level reliably right now. And so if they, we've already seen Eugenio Suarez be traded. Uh, Matt Chapman is still on the board and a lot of teams are looking for upgrades at third base. And so the thought process is the Astros can swoop in, trade Bregman before he gets into his final year of control because the alternative is trading Jose Altuve and it feels like they would keep Altuve over keeping Bregman. And then the return here is trying to get them a young infielder Jordan Westberg from the Orioles, who we talked about. If the Orioles trade, it feels like it's going to be 
one of the major league veterans. But if you see an infielder traded, it could be Jordan Westberg. I thought it might be Joey Ortiz. Uh, but I, I feel like it's probably more likely you see some of the expensive guys traded. And maybe the Orioles try to move Anthony Santander in this package as well, rather than moving Samuel Basalo and move it around a little bit. But uh, to me, this is a scenario the Yankees fill third base. The Yankees get an outfielder as well to cover left field. The Orioles get the top tier pitcher that I'm sorry, they are not going to pay for in free agency. People keep telling me, especially when we were in, when we were talking about the trade deadline that the Orioles had, people were telling me that they're going to go out and make all these improvements in free agency. And I'm like, where's the groundwork for them going and spending a lot of money in free agency on big name players. If they do anything, they would trade for a pitcher. Dylan Cease is the one that has multiple years of control. It's not just this year. Tower Glasnow is a one-year thing. This is multiple years of control versus Glasnow and Burns. And then the White Sox, who have been getting rid of pieces to try and get better, they do give up Jared Schuster, who they just got from Atlanta in a five-for-one deal where they traded away reliever Aaron Bummer. Uh, but they get a, a future center fielder in Jason Dominguez. That's the hardest part for the, to see the Yankees giving up. They get a potential either catcher or first baseman in Samuel Basalo. He's young enough where we don't really know. And they get a young, promising pitcher in Spencer Arigetti, who they don't have to uh, put on the 40-man roster yet. You can see why each trade would do this, or why each team in the trade would do this. At the same time, remember that it is incredibly unlikely that any sort of four-team trade ever happens, right? Those, that's just not a very common, uh, that is an unusual size of a trade. And so it's probably more likely that one of those, that the, te- the configuration of teams in this trade is a little bit different and that it eventually does happen. Because obviously, the more teams you have in the trade, the more places there are for one team to not be happy and the trade not go through. But either way, this does... It is really interesting. I applaud Anthony for finding a really interesting way to do this. And I'll try to remember to link this article in the episode description in the show notes for you. Again, if you've got questions for us, I want to hear them. I mentioned at the start of the segment how to get them to us. But in the meantime, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer.